I uh, appreciate you guys being here and grateful to be here. We'll be in John chapter 11 all, um, all morning walking through this wonderful story that Stephanie read for us. Um, as far as resources to help us with further conversations, because sermons are not a perfect uh, way of dealing with big topics that require a lot of conversation. They're much better in, in, with dialogue and study and time and that sort of thing. And, and because the topic that we're talking about today is sort of a bigger topic, I want to commend to you two things that are easily accessible online. One is um, that this passage of Scripture was preached on, in, in New York City by my you know, personal hero, Tim Keller, which uh, you probably hear from a lot uh, from being around at Ambassador, um, because the sermon that Tim Keller preached after, the Sunday after 9-11 was on John chapter 11, talking about this passage. And uh, in, in hearing him, you can just see it on YouTube, reckoning with the destruction and the loss and the who knows why and what happened and what will happen of 9-11, to, to bring that to bear on John chapter 11 was a very powerful thing, again, that you can access. Another resource that was really helpful for me this morning and for the sermon is uh, Rebecca McLaughlin is, uh, I think she's Oxford, uh, some sort of British um, uh, educational institution that she taught at and, and graduated from, and she wrote a book called Confronting Christianity, and she, uh, in her chapter on evil and suffering and why God would allow evil and suffering in the world, she also basically writes a sermon, a really wonderful sermon on um, John chapter 11. So those are two great resources because today when we look at this story of Jesus, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, we start to ask these big questions like the so-called problem of evil that many people have as a barrier to belief in Jesus. Why would a good God who also claims to be good and all-powerful allow so much evil and suffering and injustice into the world? How could God allow that? How could either He be good or all-powerful. And then there's this also this feeling in the passage, the frustration, the angst in the passage, the accusations made to Jesus that brings out a common problem with Christians and Christian living and following Jesus, which is, why would God allow evil to happen and injustice and inexplainable, uh, unexplainable things to Christians? Like, if I'm on board with this following Jesus thing and I'm, I'm living for God and I love God and I want God in my life, then why would He let this Thing, this loss, this struggle happened to me, his follower, somebody who he claims to love. It's, it's basically asking the question, what do you do as a Christian when God gives you the life that you never imagined, that is not statistically probable, and, and maybe your life is worse than your non-Christian friends, it doesn't turn out the way you expected? What do you do when Jesus doesn't show up for you? Uh, and we all have these different, like, suffering is subjective. Like, when you go to the doctor and you have a pain, the doctor says, how is your pain on a scale of 1 to 10? 10 being the worst pain you've ever felt. And then you have to sort of reckon with, what's the worst pain I've ever felt? For me, I got dental surgery without Novocaine for some dumb reason because I lived in a backwater town, and like, that was my 10. And then like, anything else after that was just less than that. Like, that was 10. We all, suffering is subjective. And, and sometimes when you share hurts around other people and you share your 10, your 10 is just a much lower 10. Than other people, and, and, and yet our hurts, they are still very real to us, and God still meets us in those hurts. It's not like the only person who gets to mourn in the group is the person with the, with the hardest life. So God meets us in the midst of those, um, those deaths, those losses. 
And, uh, and so every life has struggle, and one of the great things about being a part of a church and a community of grace is that you can share your struggles, even if they're not the worst ones, and still get grace and, and have God meet you there and have other people meet you there. I say that because this week I got sick from my toddler, like, again. Like, I'm getting sick all the time because I send my kid to daycare. Daycare is just like a petri dish where they watch your kid for a bit, and then they just bring the illnesses that are coming to Orange County to you into your nose. There was literally a moment where my son looked at me, and he goes, ha, ah, ah, and I went right up into my eyes, and I was like, three days from now, I'm going to be so sick. And that's exactly what happened. I just got over being sick, though, because before that, my son had hand, foot, and mouth. Do not Google this. It is like you get sick, your kid gets, has a fever, and then um, you get like red spots all over your hand, foot, mouth, and other parts of your body. Basically, anything from your body um, that, you, that comes out of your body is contagious from hand, foot, and mouth. It just gets all over the place. And we're potty training this toddler. He, doesn't, he won't watch this online, and I don't think he's here. So he's in the nursery. So like, and he's fine. He's all healthy now. Uh, so he, uh, so he, like hand, foot, mouth, it's super contagious. It comes, the, the, it, you can catch it from the blisters, from the sneezing, from the other things that come out of your body. And we're potty training this kid. And he's just starting to get the hang of the fact that like, you know, potty goes in the potty, whatever, all this stuff goes in the potty. But in this moment of like, how is this my life? My son is running around the first floor of our house, and he's like trying to get his clothes off because he realizes he has to go to the bathroom. He's going to the bathroom while he's trying to get his clothes off. Everything's coming out. It's all over, tracked through the different parts of the house. I was doing the dishes, and I was thinking like, the house is a huge mess. It has just everything all over. And then I go to grab my son to like put him on the potty, and, and, and I've realized the mess is like worse than I had thought. And then when I grab my son by the, under his armpits, he like puts his hands on me to stabilize. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know? So I grab him up, it's, it's all over here. I stick him into the shower and like, you stay there. I turn the water on, it just immediately hits him and he's like, okay, I understand what's going on here. And then he's like, starts just like toddlers do whenever the water is hitting them. All of it's just a mess splashing into my eyeballs. And I was like, whatever. So I run to the sink. I wash my face off. I wash my arms off all the way up to my shoulders. And then I look back at my son, and he's like, fine. And I realize, oh, there's still a mess in the house. I need to go clean up. So I walk outside of the bathroom door to see the rest of the house. And then my dog, full-size standard poodle, is just walking around licking all of the stuff on the ground. And then I was like, ah! so I grabbed the dog, I throw him outside, I put the hose in his mouth all over his face. You are not sniffing anything for the rest of your life with that mouth. I wash off his paws, I realize my son's still in the shower, I gotta go clean him up. I run in the shower. Of course, every time running through the house is like this because you gotta avoid all the stuff on the ground. I take care of my son, take care of the dog. Hannah comes down with the, our newborn baby and is like, what is going on down here? And I was like, how is this my life? Okay. So anyways, this is, this is, that was two weeks ago. This week, trials happen in life. They're a guarantee, I think, is what, especially if you have kids. There's other things in life that are trials, though, because the more attached to things you are in life, the more you love something, the more connected you are to something, the, the deeper that hurt goes. Like when you lose someone you love or when someone disappoints you or when, when you know, like in this phase of life, the stuff that my wife and I are doing are just so... It's so different than the phase of life you have before where all you do as a married couple is like drink coffee, read books, and hang out with your sophisticated friends. And now, otherwise, you're just on your hands and knees like wiping up the floor. And you just go, how is this my life now? 
the more attached, the more love, the more connected we are, the deeper those hurts go. Any relationship, the deeper that relationship is, if it's severed, if it's a loss, then you see the pain going even more, more deep. And so it, asks these, it begs questions of Christians and people who are not sure where they stand with God, which is, what meaning is there in life through pain and suffering, the, the unexpected sufferings, the sudden losses, the inexplicable suffering that happens globally and, and then citywide and even in our own lives? So we have to ask the question, what does it look like to suffer with God? What does it look like to, in, in a Christian perspective? What does it look like for us to suffer without God? Are there other ways to think that help us with suffering? It's just asking the question, should I leave God when things get hard? Should I stick with Jesus when things get hard? Are there resources there? And then are there other perspectives, other religions even that can help us? And like I said, non-Christians, Christians, we all sort of ask that question. Is there purpose? Is there a larger purpose in my life that I could hold on to that would get me through loss? Is there justice in the world that would make, make me think things will be made right? And is there a design that tells me this is the way it ought to be? And it almost validates my feelings when I say this is not the way life ought to be. Uh, Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, um, scholar, author, he writes this in response to that question of meaning, purpose, justice, and design. He says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, and other people are just going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is no, at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, or no, and nothing but pitiless indifference." So, we have to ask the question, if, if there is no God, what do we do with our hearts longing for meaning? If there is a God, where is He in the midst of our suffering? So, let's talk first about suffering without God, then suffering in other perspectives, and then suffering with Jesus. For some, removing God from the equation is a, a balm, is, it feels like a help in the midst of inexplicable suffering. It's almost something like this. Let's get rid of the idea of a God that cares for you or can save you and make the meaning that you can find for yourself on your own. There is no God out there to be a solution. Like Stephen Hawking, scientist, uh, says that the brain is a computer that stops working when its components fail. He says, there is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. This is a fairy tale story for people who are afraid of the dark. And uh, that's not to say that um, I, I don't use these quotes about atheism and cold hard atheism just to say, don't you see how terrible it is if you don't believe in God, you better want it. Uh, what I mean to say is there is a longing in the minds and hearts of a lot of people, but a lot of the reconciliation with this idea that if there is no God, then where do I really get this thing from? Uh, where Hawking says, um, there's no heaven for broken down computers. So what do I do with the disparity between the possibility that there is no God, but my heart's longing, almost universal longing, that there is some sort of meaning and importance to my individuality or my suffering. So, I don't mean to say that non-belief in God means there's no meaning in your life because there's a couple of responses that people give, like humanism is an idea that says, let's be progressive, let's be forward-thinking, let's all make the world a better place, love each other, um, and be good 
without God, let's, and in fact, other people would say belief in God is actually a barrier to humanism and progress because we need to abandon our belief that God has uh, ideas about what should be believed and what shouldn't be believed and what ought to be lived and what, what shouldn't be lived. And let's move on from that so that we're not constantly excluding people. And uh, without too much detail, because I said the sermon's not a perfect place to do this, um, I want to just have us remember back when we were like in middle school, high school, when you were like going through a growth spurt, and you were constantly like raiding your parents' pantry and fridge for something. Have you ever been so hungry, but you don't know why you're still hungry, and you're just opening the fridge hoping that the next time you open it, there's something better inside the fridge? <laughs> Have you ever had that? Or like when you're, you're young, you're just growing, you're like, I just can't get enough calories in my life, and so you're just eating the most random stuff from the back of the closet, or back of the pantry. And of course, when you're younger, and your parents are the ones supplying the food, it has less meaning to you when you just drink like three root beers, because it, that's just what you wanted, right? You're borrowing from your parents' in come from your parents' pantry, and you're just filling yourself with something that you need. And that's how I feel when I hear about humanism and just sort of our culture's general desire to have meaning, to say you don't need to believe in God, um, but let's all be moral, let's all treat each other well because we all agree on what's moral and right, which is not true. That's, there's not a lot of agreement on this, and certainly that's probably part of why our culture is so divided. But we are in a time in our culture where we're getting over our Christian past as a culture, we're looking to deny and like reject parts of Christianity and, and most importantly, the, the ways that Christianity has negatively influenced in people's minds, our culture. But we're still borrowing from that pantry for a lot of the meaning. And I, I bring that up to say, uh, be careful if you want to live life without God or you feel like God is a barrier to progress or, or moral living, be careful that you don't in our time and in our cultural moment borrow from all the Christian stuff that has influenced your life. Because in the end, we do live in a funny time where there's a lot of Christian ideas about justice for the poor, individuality, individual rights. Those are all things that have come through Jesus, through culture, through time, into America, post-modern West, whatever. Be careful that if you want to live life with God, you do not say, for instance, that the universe has a plan for your life or that the universe gave you this trial and then the universe loves you. I think it is important to not reach out for something so personally constructed, something that is so wish fulfillment, so expecting that the, the little chemicals that are firing off on some distant star somehow know you and love you. Like, don't grasp for that. I guess what I'm also saying is don't settle for that because either it is true that at bottom there is no purpose, no good, no evil, just pitiless indifference, or a possibility of something else. I want to warn us against creating some sort of mythical universe that somehow knows us because we just don't see it. It's almost a figment of our wish fulfillment. I, wanna, I want God not to exist, and yet I want all the things from the Christian ethic to still exist, and it, it just doesn't connect. So that's what it might look like for us to try and have meaning through suffering without God. And there are other perspectives out there. For instance, I was playing golf the other day. You know, I love as a pastor when someone's like, Pastor, I want to get a lot of time with you. Also, I have a tea time on Thursday. And it's like, yes, I think you need some pastoral counseling. So I, I went golfing with uh, my buddy, and um, he's got some other friends that are unchurched folks that were with us in this foursome playing golf. And uh, I sit down just right when the round, like pre-round uh, uh, hangout, 
And uh, the guy says, oh, you're a pastor. Oh, okay, I didn't know uh, that guy goes to church. Oh, interesting. Okay, so you're, you're my buddy's pastor. What do you think? And it was great because, you know, he just goes like, oh, I used to be in this other religion. Now I'm, I'm an uh, agnostic, but I'm a free agent. This is what he says. Listen, I'm a free agent. Uh, I will you, give me your best argument that you can for Jesus, and I'll give it a shot. Like, I don't have any dog in this fight. Like, I'm open to anything. And, of course, uh, I was just like, you're really putting me on the spot here. Uh, I should have a better answer. I said something like I always say, which is like Christianity doesn't provide a watertight argument, but a watertight person, and you should look into Jesus and see what happens of that. Anyways, so, um, but of course, that was much more eloquent because I had time to think about it before I told you about it, and so I choked through some, some random thing, and then we just started a good round where I played golf really well, which was really fun. And, um, <clears throat> but it was interesting that in that conversation, he said um, something I hear a lot, which is, I'm entertaining Buddhism, and I just am interested, and I like what's going on from it. And it reminded me of this quote from Jonathan Haidt, who's a secular Jewish um, scholar and journalist, and he wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis from his sort of secular Jewish perspective. And, and it reminded me of this quote I want to read you about the happiness hypothesis, how to be happy. He says, when I began writing this book, I thought that Buddha would be a strong can- a contender for the best psychologist of the last 3,000 years award. To me, my diagnosis of the futility of striving felt so right, his promise of tranquility so alluring, but in doing research for the book, I began to think that Buddhism might be based on an overreaction, perhaps even an error. And without going into too much detail on defining Buddhism, it's important that we know that at the core of Buddhism is sort of this story about a king who wants to keep a, keep a prince in the kingdom and make sure that he doesn't leave, and so he shelters the prince, and then the prince says, I want to strive out to discover the world. And so he allows the prince to leave the castle into the rest of the city, but the king tells the, the, the citizens of the city to hide all of the poor, hide all of the dying, hide all of the sick, so that the prince doesn't get scared of what's really going on in the rest of the kingdom and want to leave. And so he shelters it, but as the prince leaves on his chariot, Riding around the kingdom of everything, everything is set to be perfect. He sees one person who's old, and that's where the prince finds out that people get old. And then he sees on another trip to, uh, around the kingdom, he sees one person with disease, and he learns that people die. He sees one person who's poor and learns of poor. And so at the core of Buddhism is this sort of myth that the, the prince leaves the kingdom searching for enlightenment, and the Buddha tells this prince that all of life is suffering, and the only way to break the hold of suffering is to break the ties of attachment that bind us to life. This idea of reaching enlightenment is found in some sort of self-salvation project, my words, by reaching enlightenment from letting go of your attachment to the things that you would otherwise say, I need this, I find meaning in this, and just to be a whole self that is able to reach a, a kind of nirvana enlightenment by letting go so that in the midst of suffering, you can find Zen, you can find centeredness, you can find fulfillment, because nothing can break you, pull you away or distract you if you realize that nothing is anything. So it's a solution to suffering. In fact, the whole religion is based around sort of this problem of evil that I will grant you is made more difficult when God, the Christian God, claims to be loving, claims to know you, claims to weep after you're hurt, and claims to be powerful over that suffering. So, the solution is detach. 
So now we sort of let's, let's call a long halftime on this sermon and let's finish our time just talking about what does it look like for us to go through suffering and help other people through suffering with Jesus. Jesus doesn't arrive for these people who know Him and love Him. Earlier in John chapter 8, Mary sat at Jesus' feet while Martha was serving Him. So Mary and Martha, they know Jesus. They follow Jesus. They see Him as the Messiah. In John chapter 11, Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus is sick. And so they do what any, any follower of Jesus would do. Call on their miracle healing, give sight to the blind friend to come help. They call on Jesus, obviously. So let's go back into our text. Verse 3, the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So we know Jesus knows Lazarus, loves him. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So he's sort of tipping his cards a little bit to say there's a plan. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus loves them. He claims to be the Son of God, and yet he stays. Jesus did not show up. He did not come. This is justifiable. I actually think it gives us great credence to pray really honest prayers when we're disappointed and frustrated with God. Because these people who say, we know you, we know you're the Messiah, we've been with you, we've seen you, we've heard you, we've lived life with you, and yet why? And at different times in the story, Mary and Martha both go out to Jesus and say the same thing. If you had not been here, if you had been here, he would not be dead. There's a mystery, but, but it's not just a pleasant Christian, who knows, God's always working in mysterious ways because they're attached to their brother. And in the ancient Near East, the women in Lazarus' life would be dependent on Lazarus. So it's not just they loved Lazarus, it's that they're saying, how are we going to live as two women in this time without this man to be the supporter for us? So it's a a livelihood as well as their their loved one. It reminds me that C.S. Lewis, in A Grief Observed, in writing about the loss of his wife, he says this, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about Him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Lewis is saying, I'm not at risk of suddenly believing that God logically doesn't exist, but believing such dreadful things is this the kind of God who loves me and claims to know me and claims to care about me? That's the risk. And at times I think we have to recognize that belief in the biblical God does create a different kind of heartache than a person who might be very detached from hope, very detached from claiming that there is a meaning to life. Because I think there's a kind of person who doesn't know God, doesn't claim to know God, that might live with a certain kind of mystery in the midst of suffering, make up their own meaning, and that might be a balm for them. But I don't think we can escape it when we're Christians. We can't just easily wiggle our way out of the fact that, like, I'm really hurting, I'm really confused, or I'm really angry about it. Because I think having a God who loves us and knows us and can do something about evil can even create that angst in a deeper level. 
Why? Because separate from a Buddhist perspective, we are more attached into the world that we live in. Like when we see injustice in our city, we're more attached to the lives that that affects. We're entering in with a God who enters in, and so we're more, it can create more heartache, more pain and more anger, more yelling, more political fights maybe, more, more showing up to city hall and saying this is not right, or more um, even fighting over ideas because there's lives that are represented by them. It's not just our postmodern relativistic way of saying like everyone has their own truth. Because you're fighting for a thing that you say, this is what goodness should look like. And so I just want to recognize that like, there might be other ideas out there that you could believe that might, you, might make you a more easygoing person, might make you more agreeable sometimes. And while I'm certainly not advocating for a kind of culture war that Christians propagate, I'm just saying that there's things out there worth fighting, there's things to claim as a Christian, and, and it hurts deeper because of our attachment. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. So, what happens when Jesus arrives? Verse 17, <clears throat> now Jesus came. He found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for days. So, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, he went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I, kn- I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I hear in this statement not a pleasant, oh, I know you're Jesus, but like a very frustrated, like she's preaching back to Jesus, like we know who you are, so be who you are. I hear a kind of faith and a frustration. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again, Martha. This is so interesting. Verse 24, Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's saying, Jesus, I know the Christian answer. I know the Bible answer. I know the theological answer. I don't want the theological answer. I'm hurting now. Haven't you had that same Christian experience as well? You're like, yeah, I know the Bible stuff. I know the true stuff. I'm angry. I don't want to believe that stuff. I want to believe what I feel. I'm all in my feelings. I'm all frustrated with God. I'm all angry about what's going on. It's like children, when you're saying, I don't, it doesn't matter what you say to me right now. I'm, I'm just frustrated at what I am experiencing and the loss that I have right in front of me. It's so realistic. In, at root, I think all of us are kids when we're in pain. Like we go back to being frustrated, stompy, angry young people when we're in pain. We need, we're hard to console, and we want immediate help. But I think it's beautiful that Jesus meets them right in the midst of that hurt. Because what you don't see here is Jesus getting angry at their lack of faith, and you don't see Jesus giving a diatribe about, if you really had more faith, you'd realize that I'm about to fix your problem. He doesn't do that. Verse 25, he, he redirects the conversation in this powerful way. Verse 25, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, shall he shall, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So a shocking statement. First, they say, come help us. Then Jesus doesn't show up at the right time. Then he responds to them by saying, I am the life. I am the resurrection. It reminds me um, when we, I've got all sorts of kid illustrations, but you know when you're a parent of young kids, like everything is sort of kid related because it's just, you have to do it every day. So, um, 
not the toddler, but the newborn was in the ER like two weeks ago while the other one was sick. And it was an ER visit because it was one of those, like, we called the doctor and they were like, you should go to the ER because it could be something worse, but it's probably not. And uh, I have learned, and my wife too, have learned not to get super scared of that because it just happens. Like, sometimes you go to the ER. Sometimes babies do crazy stuff, and that's what the doctor tells you at the ER. Like, that's the diagnosis. Like, oh, this thing could be this terrible thing where your baby dies. But also, babies just do crazy stuff, and that was the diagnosis again. And so uh, they had to draw our little baby's blood, and um, they stick a needle in there, and the first one didn't work, and so they're just like jabbing around my little baby's hand. And the hardest part about being in the hospital, my wife reports, is, is just the look that the baby gives you when the jab goes in. Looks, the baby looks right at your eye and goes, how could you allow this? You know, it's like, save me. You're the one in charge. You know, like, how is this what I'm feeling right now? I thought all I was supposed to do was be taken care of, and I thought you loved me. And that's just all the look from the baby's eyes, just like interpreted as mom. And that's the hard part. And I think we do that too. It's like a looking to Jesus and going, when life really hits you, when life like kicks you right in the chest, and you pray things that are like that, like, I, how? How is this? happening, how, and, and the pain can make you bitter, and you're, you're waiting for God to save you, how could the pain possibly be this bad? And that's really where Mary and Martha are, and especially the people with them. And then Jesus' response is so powerful because He's saying, in the face of the question, what could possibly explain this pain? What could possibly be worth all of this? What, what lesson, what consolation, what could possibly be worth all of the stuff that I'm experiencing that's in the world? And Jesus' response is, I am. And if you don't believe in Jesus, it, that might seem like an egotistical thing to say, or it might seem like it's just not enough to explain it. But just enter into what Jesus is saying here for a second when he says, what could explain the pain? What could possibly be a reason or a thing that could be worth all of this? And he's saying, I am so valuable. I bring so much life. I have the power to restore you and all of this. Such that if you're asking the question, what could be worth all this? What good could overcome all of this? He's saying, it's me. I'm the only thing that can do it. And if any part of this pain and loss and suffering draws you to me, allows you to see me in a new light, it'll be worth it a thousandfold. That's what Jesus says about himself. He's saying, all of this resurrection that you're looking for, which the Jews believed in an end-time resurrection, and so they were were looking for a Savior to come bring about a kingdom that does bring all of the injustices to justice and all the wrongs to right and uh, and to fulfill the meaning and the narrative story arc of like that we all have in our life, that we want to be radiant, we want to live eternally, we want to have a personhood that lasts, we don't want to be a computer whose software just fails one day. All of those longings, all of those hopes that sense of injustice that needs to be made right, he's saying, it will only be found in me. And every other location that you try and find it will only fall flat. It will only die or turn off. And so he's saying, yeah, I know you're frustrated, but the thing you have to know is that it will only be found here. 
I am the resurrection. I am the restoration of all things. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection, He's not just saying, I can resurrect. He's saying, it's not like the goodness that I bring in heaven, in His return, in salvation in Him. He's not just saying it will be better and totally different. That would be one promise that would be okay. Like He would say, sure, this stinks, but eventually I'll burn all of this up, and then you'll get to be like a floating ghost on a cloud, heaven, traditional European heaven imagery. He's saying, I am the resurrection. And so He's saying, your personality, your city, your family, your relationships, the trees, everything will be resurrected and made right. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. So, it's like all of the culture, all of the food, all of the relationships will not just be ended and then a new thing will start. He's saying, I am the resurrection. I am the perfection of all things beautiful. I'm the maximizer, the perfecter of all the things that you see in, in first fruits, in small bits in your life today. I'm the, the perfecter of the things that show you about God's goodness in the world, and I'm the life. And then he lives by this statement with Lazarus, verse 27 to the end of the passage. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And when Jesus, in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Actually, the translation here is difficult. It's not deeply moved as in uh, he was just emotional. It means he's angry. He's angry at something very particular, and we need to close with that. He's angry and in his spirit greatly troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see, and then Jesus wept. And I don't have time for this because I've already gone a little bit long, but I, I think it's powerful that Jesus enters in. He knows the resolution to the story. He knows what He's going to do. He's already said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He's got plans to please everyone and create a testimony that would go out all over and get written down and then come to us in 2022 in John 11. He knows the end of the story, and yet He's so entered in, He refuses to be a distant God who's just disconnected with miracle power because He's right there with those people. Both angry, but also crying. Like he has a whole range of human emotions in his connection with those people. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But then other people said, could he not have the person who kept the, uh, uh, opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man from dying? Jesus is particularly engaged with this hurt. And in verse 38, deeply moved again, he comes to the tomb. He says, take away the stone. And he says, Lazarus, come out. He yells, Lazarus, come out. Jesus is angry at death. He's angry at the destruction that death brings. He's angry at the darkness. And we know <clears throat> that Jesus, we know that Jesus understands the darkness and suffering because he enters into it. He took on the emotional burden of the people there that day. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see as He's reckoning with the death that He's going to do on the cross, He takes on the burden of our sin. He takes on all the injustices of the world on Himself on the cross. We know Jesus is hyper-engaged with hurt and pain. We see Him as a suffering God. And so, when He's screaming out to Lazarus, 
come out. You can imagine all the emotion, all of the anger at injustice, understanding what he's going to have to do to be a solution to that injustice and his death on the cross. And I can just imagine Jesus in that moment, like letting all of that emotion and just screaming at Lazarus, come out, and to see the power of God that brings life, that where he is the resurrection, and to see Lazarus unbinding himself, being unbound, and having that life brought to him and to those people. That is a foretaste of the kind of life that we have in Jesus. We live with that kind of resurrection power, that kind of life every single day. And at times, life clouds our ability to see, and that's a justifiable thing. thing. This story justifies your feelings when you say, I know God loves me, I know what He's done for me, and yet I just cannot see how anything good could come from the evil in the world. And when you feel that way, you can read this story and see that the same God that you're angry at also has reasons that are so far beyond our ability to reckon that all we can do is to trust in Him. And that's a hard step when you're, in, when you're going through stuff and when there's confusion and pain. But we know something from the cross. We know something from His life that He's lived that I can't, argue out, out of, I can't argue you out of being angry about suffering, and yet we don't have an argument poster. We have a Savior here who enters into every bit of suffering with us and died to be a solution for it. Um, final thought. One of the things that has proven to me and Hannah that God is good in the midst of just the ups and downs of life is a, a community. And being a part of Ambassador Church was, has been a real special experience because we came to Ambassador with just our own set of like, I thought life would be this way, but it wasn't. And for us, it was like an infertility thing. We had been trying to have kids for a couple of years, and it was like all the tests and all the prayers and all the why. And, um, and it was just our particular set of things that we had wanted from God to have a family when we started trying. And um, and then the confusion of like, is this ever going to happen? And so it was a big loss for us. And I rec- and we would meet with people, and they said, "Oh yeah, we went through that too." And here's our testimony, and of it, and that's powerful to hear. Um, but we had our own set of those things. And when we got to Ambassador, you know, four and a half years ago, we met with a bunch of people who were like young parent, parents of young kids, a lot of people who were married, and then a lot of people that had Ambassador that were just very loving and, and immediately welcomed us in. And it shows me, like one of my lessons about God's goodness in being here for four years, is that one of the ways that God tells us, Romans 8, that God makes all, works all things for good, for those who love Him and are called to according to the purpose. One of the things that allows us to see that truth, that God can work all things for good, even the trials and the disappointments, is a community of people who can remind you of that in word and deed. And if, if we didn't have that from Ambassador, I think we would be in a very different place, like um, interpersonally, with our marriage, with my ministry life. So, I want to thank you, Ambassador, for being the kind of community that just did reveal to my wife and I through the ups and downs of, of life, and then all the transitions that have happened since being an ambassador, because it's just been four years of a lot of change, um, that God does work all things for good, and that it is a beautiful thing to have a community of people who love you in a way that shows you that. Like, there's a good God who's a sacrificial God who brings life, and, and it, 
it's, it's more than just reading it when it's lived out in a community, and that's been a beautiful thing to be a part of. Let me pray.